Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I sit down with distinguished guests to discuss the most interesting topics related to the human condition. These guests share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Forsan Hussein, a Palestinian entrepreneur, activist, and philanthropist who's taking the initiative in peacebuilding efforts across the Middle East. Forsan and I discuss the dangerous power of cultural narratives and how we can find peace with the past and move forward together. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. If you enjoy our conversations, please feel free to share these stories far and wide. What is the story of your life, and who told it to you? This is what it means to question a cultural narrative. As described by Forsan Hussein, it's a major factor in the ongoing conflict between northern Israeli Arabs and Jews. This long-standing conflict is close to home for Forsan. His family has lived in the northern Israeli village of Shaab for some 16 generations when Forsan was born. In this conversation, he describes his life spent growing up with a prevailing, troubling narrative coming from every direction. He describes the transformational moment when he was able to break free from the narrative by searching for the truth himself. He recounts his time as a student delivering this peaceful message across North America. And finally, in Dubai, where this conversation was recorded, Forsan tells us about his work promoting peace, cooperation, and coexistence with and beyond the Middle East. Forsan Hussein, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Bakhtash. So good to see you. Likewise, it's wonderful to have you here. And so the way I like to start all my conversations, Forsan, is by asking a simple yet important question. How would you, in your own words, define who you are? In many ways, I see myself as one of the luckiest men I know. I see my life as a trajectory and a story of, in many ways, transformation. On some levels, I see myself as a farmer who, growing up in a small Palestinian village, spent his childhood amongst 2,000-year-old olive trees, And through that monocle, I also see myself as a shepherd. And that same shepherd farmer is also happened to be a man of the world. My playing ground went from small, little, tiny Palestinian village in northern Israel to international hubs and airports and cities all over the world. So yes, I'm also a man of the world. But in all of that, Bakhtash... I feel I'm a super, super lucky man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that definition. And so what would be really interesting to kind of explore is to understand how your upbringing in a small little village in Israel has informed who you are and the work that you do in particular as it pertains to building bridges. So help us understand how your childhood has informed the work that you do now as a business executive, an entrepreneur, and is somebody who's really doing a lot of work and implementing a lot of initiatives to build bridges between worlds. How does that happen? The story of my life, that's what you're asking. I grew up in a small Palestinian village, like you said, in northern Israel, and I'm actually a product of this Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I'm a product of narratives, of stories told from an early age, Stories that defined, in a way, who you are. And by the way, you had nothing to do with it. They defined who you are. 
for you from an early age. So you grew up in a reality that is dictated to you by others. And that transformation happens when you start realizing that narrative is not the entire story. And allow me to explain. As a young boy, born and raised to middle to lower income family, I had to work from an early age because you know we were many, many kids in the family, parents uneducated, mother is uh, illiterate, father finished second, third grade, all his life worked in construction. And the story of that is because of, hey, what happened to my family in 1948? My narrative, the narrative that I was told, my family, my history, you know, we're Palestinians. We were living in the same Arab village, Palestinian village in northern Israel for the past 15, 16 generations. The Romans planted olive trees in my village 2,000 years ago. And we continue to harvest them up until today. So that's where I grew up. But I also grew up with the narrative that says these trees that used to belong to my people, to the Husseins and to the other families in, in the village, are no longer ours. They're no longer ours since 1948, when my family was kicked out of our village, Shab. Indeed, today, most of the Husseins and most of the people in my village remain to be refugees in southern Lebanon, 70-something years later. And that's a sad story. But I did grow up with this narrative that, you know, we the Palestinians were living in the Galilee and one day the Jews come and they kick us out. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple narrative. And when you tell that narrative to little kids and you spice that up with images and violence, you start believing them as the truth. Because you're a child and you don't know any better. What do you know? Right. Well, not only that, worse yet, the Arab media, Lebanese, Syrian, Jordanian TVs, and the images of Jewish Israelis that were portrayed in the Arab media were really difficult. Mm -hmm. They reflected reality, the Intifada, the Palestinian Intifada, and the other wars that happened between Arabs and Jews. And so for me, every stereotype that I was told, it was fact. Mm -hmm. I perceived it as the ultimate truth. Jews were the ones who uprooted my family and they occupied our land and they took everything away from us. And then again, as a child, you look at the media sources and and these images cement what you are told. I don't think there is a place in this world that I relate to more than that little tiny piece of land. Because sometimes, you know, when you're there, you look at these trees, what they have seen And you think, if the trees could only speak. So this is the reality that I grew up with. But my life really changed when my sheep sneaks into the neighboring Jewish village and I have to get it out. Right Now, until that point, I really did not come in touch with Israeli Jews. At least not that I knew of. But the truth is, I did. The doctor in my village was a Jewish Israeli. But what did I know? You know, I'd go there and he'd speak to us in Arabic. So I really didn't understand, didn't even fathom that he might not be an Arab. And guess what? He didn't look like most Jews I've seen on TV. I was so scared because all I know about them is the level of violence that exists against us. Mm -hmm. I was amazed 
when I walked into this neighboring Jewish village. That encounter changed my entire life. The reason being is I saw Jewish kids that looked exactly like me. Mm-hmm. One of their parents was a Jewish religious man who was wearing a kippah, a yarmulke, which looked exactly like my grandfather's Muslim yarmulke, only a little smaller. He also had a beard, which looked like my grandfather's too. And so the similarities were astonishing. And yes, at some point they noticed me and they called me and you know, we, I played with them. They were generous enough. They gave me something to eat, took my sheep and went back to the village. And that was, in a way, the first U-shift in my life. That was a transformational point. Because at that point, I realized, oh my God, maybe I was told a lie. All these stereotypes that I had, all these thoughts against somebody, maybe none of it is true. So I started to dig. Now here's the thing, I dug in and dug deep, not because I was really looking for the truth. No, I was just a simple kid who wanted to have fun. And guess what? Jewish villages at that point, they were a lot of fun. They had paved roads, they had soccer fields with grass, uh, they had schools of their own, sidewalks, greenery. And you didn't? Nothing. Right. None of it. I went to a high school in my village that didn't even have a building. Families in the village donated their basements for us to have a high school. I can give you a million examples of this, but this is not the point of it. The point is that I did realize that, huh, we're a lot more similar than I was told. And so for me, I started to go there on my own. Two years later, maybe I was 10 years old when I suggested to my teacher Could you please talk to these Jewish families and have them come visit us in my village? Why? Because, you know, I've been going there and it's a lot of fun and maybe they should also come and visit us and see how we live. Mm -hmm. That actually what sparked the creation of the first nonprofit organization in northern Israel that supports coexistence between Arabs and Jews, equality and peace. We established that organization in 1989. And so from that moment... I dedicated myself to peace building. At that point, I, in a way, understood something about me. Being a Palestinian, an Arab, a non-Jewish citizen of the state of Israel, which defines itself as a state for the Jews. And in so many ways, all of a sudden, I now understand why we have discrimination against us and the laws and all of these. And so I became a very uh, young, active peace activist and uh, understood that there are two tracks of peace. Because I had learned at the time that there is peace between Israel and Egypt. But what type of peace? Yeah, what does it look like? Right. That was totally cold peace. It was what I call a leader's peace as opposed to a people's peace. Oh, help us understand the difference. Well, when you talk about peace building, there are two different tracks. The bottom up and the top down. The top down is what I call the leader's peace. This is a peace that could be totally cool, totally cold, Uh, This is not a warm peace. Let's just sign an agreement not to get into a war. Again, you look at Jordan and Israel, you look at Egypt and Israel, and miraculously, this cold peace between Egypt and Israel has lasted for over three, four decades now. Mm -hmm. A people's peace is one that is aimed at changing minds and hearts of people. It starts from the bottom up. 
It's about people meeting people, understanding narratives, getting to know one another, building relationships. Talking, dialogue, important. And I always claim that, you know, these two tracks are completely complementary. One cannot stand alone without the other. For example, we have this piece between uh, Jordan and Israel. And uh, I knew that this is going to be a cold piece. So why don't I initiate a people's peace process within that track? So I decided to take 50 Israelis, Arabs and Jews. Mm -hmm. And we connected with the office of the Hashemite kingdom. And uh, they sponsored us. They loved the idea. Was At the time was King Hussein of Jordan. We went there in 1996. And it was the first peace camp between Israel and Arab country. We spent a couple of weeks and it was an incredible experience. But life is such an amazing thing that when I came back from Jordan, that first Jewish man that I saw who invited me into their community, he remained active in this organization that we created. And he's the one who told me, listen, Fursan, I have read in Haaretz newspaper about a scholarship that sends two Israeli citizens, a Palestinian Arab and a Jew, to Brandeis University full scholarship and what was the criteria for the scholarship oh boy um (laughs) well one main criteria is that uh, candidates had to be very active in peace building but also they had to have excellent grades and all sorts of accomplishments the truth is i didn't have much of the grades oh by the way english was an important thing you had to speak english and english was not my thing Right, you didn't know English at the time. I really, my English was so weak. I remember even in 10th grade, you know, you were still dealing with the sentence construction. It was very, very poor. So how did this work out for you? What did you do? Well, after finishing uh, high school, I was working in construction with my father. And uh, I get this phone call saying, hey, you're expected to go to Jerusalem for this interview for a scholarship. I had been to Jerusalem maybe once in my life, and clearly I was not prepared to go that day or the day after. But I said, look, this is a chance that presenting to me, and I must go for it. I went with my work clothes to Jerusalem alone. I still remember the address. And um, I think I had the foresight to convince the five professors, including the dean of admissions at Brandeis at the time and a few other professors, I convinced them that I should speak in Hebrew. Because my English was so weak, I would totally embarrass myself and would have absolutely no chances if I opened my, my mouth up with, you know, speaking English. So they, they agreed. So I spoke in Hebrew and somebody translated uh, everything I said into English. And I was very confident. I was very confident about my vision, about what needs to be done in peace and coexistence to achieve it. And I had a lot of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and they saw something special in me. And uh, sure enough, a um, couple of months later, I get the news that I was accepted to Brandeis under one condition. Go learn English. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what did that feel like? And, and, and then what did you kind of see that responsibility as? Like, how did you kind of embrace that responsibility? Well, I mean, uh, Bakhtash, this was really the second major point of transformation for me. Here you take a Palestinian boy from an Arab village inside Israel and you take him out of the village all the way to Boston, Massachusetts, to Brandeis University. What did I know about America? All I knew about America at the time is what I had seen 
in TV late night, which was like high, big buildings, lots of lights, everybody makes money, you know, you can pick money off trees sort of thing. Absolutely. No nature whatsoever, great deal of violence, huge buildings, Chicago and New York City, and by the way, Baywatch. Right. David Hasselhoff, Pamela Anderson sort of thing. There you go. So what was it like to arrive in America with all these preconceived notions? I was amazed. From the airplane I'm looking down was the fall of 1996 and you see the changes, uh, the color, the colors, New England, right? The uh, fall foliage. The fall foliage, exactly. Amazing. I didn't understand that there could be such nature that existed in this world. And, uh, but more than anything else, I was relieved. I was relieved to actually understand that I am getting into a Jewish-sponsored university where most of the student body are Jews. I was relieved because I was scared of this big unknown called America that is so far away from my world. Yet when I saw kids with yarmulkes and I saw a kosher uh, cafeteria and I saw some people speaking Hebrew or at least understanding. By the way, look, I was one of the very few Arabs. I always said I was the Arab community at Brandeis. There was a, an Iraqi student. Mm. Okay, and that's it. So it was a major transformational point because Brandeis adopted me. They gave me every tool to succeed from ESL tutors to private meeting with professors, to an open door policy with the president of the university, and more than anything else, the dean of admissions, David Gould, adopted me as his son. So in some sense, you found, um, you found a feeling of home. It was home in every sense of the word. And uh, more than that, uh, this is a home that actually allowed me to mold my personality to explore who I am, but also gave me the stage to take a bigger responsibility that I, that what I wanted to take. I was the ambassador. I felt I was the Palestinian people's ambassador to Brandeis. I can give you hundreds of examples of conversations I'd have with uh, students who had never met a Palestinian, an Arab. They'd be shocked as to you know the stereotypes they had mm -hmm. against Arabs, mm -hmm. which is something I totally relate to, right? I mean, stereotypes are a common thing. Uh, so Brandeis really gave me the stage to shine, and I used it. I was so active at Brandeis. You know, with my Jewish-Israeli friend, we created the radio show. Millions of people were listening to this. We created the Bostonian Agreements, we which is a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. We created uh, over 30 dialogue groups in America, many of which continues to meet until today. Uh, and we started in 1996. Mm -hmm. So we were very super active. And obviously, I had a couple of uh, speaking agencies that sent me and my Jewish-Israeli uh, partner all over America, Canada, to just give speeches about our vision of peace. Now, what did you find to be the thing that most Americans misunderstood most about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. What's interesting about America's viewing of the conflict is that uh, it's very polarizing, very much like we have the Democrats and the Republicans, and you see the politics and the polarization. I also noticed that about American public. Sure. 
and specifically at universities. You either have the very pro-Israel camp, which happens to also be against Palestinians, or the vice versa. They are very Palestinian pro, and it's as if there is no way in the middle. I really enjoyed uh, spending time on American colleges because I was telling them that there is actually a third narrative. It's not all about narrative A. You know, the, the Jews came and kicked the Arabs out. Or narrative B, which said, well, you know, the Arabs wanted to kick the Jews into the sea. But it's multiple narratives. Yes, there is a truth here and there is a truth there. And you know, have to dig deep. Mm-hmm. But more than anything else, I was motivated and remain so by the fact that telling these little stories have a great deal of impact on people. Now, what do you think, given the work that you've done, where you're trying to change the narrative or at least add to the narrative in terms of providing a more complete picture, right? Because with every narrative, there is some semblance of truth. It may not be the entire thing, but there's some semblance of truth. So given the work that you do in terms of trying to create a greater sense or a more complete narrative, what do you find to be the power of narrative? What exactly is so powerful about story and the work that you do? I think the only thing we have is stories, right? I mean, what is the saying? History is uh, told by, remind me, Bakhtash, what's the... I think, uh, I think the, the, the saying is that um, history is told by uh, those that have won in history. Okay. And those that have won in history are those who write those narratives. And so I think narratives are powerful because they create a sense of identity. And it's all about identity. Who you are, what you believe in, your value set. So the common narrative has been one that says, look, you know, we're working alone. We, the Palestinians, want to do our own thing. You know, we have a state to establish. We have, a, and you know, the, the Israeli narratives are, look, you know, we're here to defend ourselves. And, you know, one day we will, you know, when the Palestinians become less violent, we'll give them a state. It does not make any sense. To me, guys, there is a third narrative. A narrative that says we can actually build a future together. Look, I understand the atrocities of the past. But the truth is, I'm not stuck there. I cannot afford being stuck Mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. What happened in 1948, and specifically I can give you personal examples of things that happened to my own family. Mm -hmm. Even in my village... Massive amounts of lands we lost in 1948 to the state of Israel. The home that my father built, he built it on his own land, which he leases from the government. The Husseins, we used to own over 1,300 olive trees. Today, we rent, we lease 20 trees from the government. Now, I look at this. Now, okay, so this is a fact. Do I like it? No. Do I want to go back to the days of 1948 as much as I wish in terms of the land that I can own back? It's just not reality. And I'm trying to say live and let live. I'm not stuck in 1948, but I am stuck in a place where, guys, enough is enough. Let us create a different model, a model that that challenges our preconceived notions, challenges the reality that's being dictated to us by our politicians. 
Why can't we create technology companies across the entire Middle East bringing Israeli deep technology to the massive Arab market? Why can't we create co-working teams working together? Very much like we did at the YMCA, creating choirs, leadership groups, creating a new type of leadership. Mm -hmm. The young generation investing in those young generation that understand that this is not a zero-sum game, that this is our future. And we have to build it together. Because guess what? We can either coexist or co-destruct. The latter is absolutely not an option. Now, is there somebody who kind of just believes in this idea and this modicum of live and let live, accept the past, we're here, nobody's going anywhere, let's come together and find a way to kind of build together versus destroying each other. How do you understand forgiveness as a matter of understanding who you are and in the past, the things done to you in the past? Like how do we have a conversation, an honest conversation about forgiveness as it pertains to this Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I don't think we can reach a stage of forgiveness without recognizing the wrongdoings and the atrocities of the past. Yes, I said, and I continue to say, I am not stuck in the past. I understand what happened in the past. I disagree with it. I wish there was a way to correct what happened. A personal example, the Palestinian refugee problem, okay, wasn't because we Palestinians, we said, hey, the Jews are coming. Let's go and all of us get together and come back and fight them. And yeah, sure, maybe that was a part of the narrative. But I know, as a fact, majority of the Palestinian people were kicked out. Mm -hmm. At least that's the case in my village, Shab. I want to have a dialogue with Israeli Jews who recognize their own wrongdoings and what they had done to the Palestinian people. I think without that recognition, I don't think we can actually move forward. What do you think is difficult about recognition and acknowledgement of the wrongdoings of the past? What is difficult about that? What's difficult is that recognition itself, that you've inflicted pain, that you've committed a crime. Nobody wants to see these images presented to them. The recognition itself to me is a mirror and you're looking straight into that. Right. And some things you see there are not good. You wouldn't accept it unto your own people. It's ugly. It's ugly. I think that's really difficult. I think in so many conversations I've had in the past, be it one-on-one -on -one or me talking to a group, I think the most resistance that I got is when I lay out the facts. 512 Arab villages were destroyed. My family are refugees until today. The home that I live in is rented, yet it is my property. You know, these things. And so people on the other side, they become very, very defensive. So what I've actually learned to do is recognize their own narrative at the beginning. Ask them what their story is. Well, not only asking them, but actually agreeing, you know, recognizing the humanity in their own narrative so that they can actually relate to my own humanity. Interesting. I think that's the most difficult thing in understanding your own wrongdoings. It's like, wow, how, what do I need to do to make Baktash or to make X, Y, or Z in front of me less defensive 
so that they can actually hear me. And what you're saying is to recognize their own narrative. Absolutely. Recognize what they're saying. I hear you. And in many ways, I've actually used this, this sentence so many times. I see it. I see it for what it is. And then I use similar things, you know, examples of the Palestinian people's daily lives, be it in Palestine or inside Israel, or I can imagine in refugee camps, be it in southern Lebanon or elsewhere spread in the Middle East. But recognizing your enemy's narrative or your perceived enemy is an important thing in maintaining a level of dialogue. Yeah. So how has this whole idea of you being the sole Palestinian at Brandeis or doing speeches across the United States and all the initiatives that you started and all the companies that you've started with Israelis, how has that kind of shaped you in ways that you didn't expect? It's just the realization that the more I dig, the more I realize that really our common humanity matters most. Mm. That our similarities by far exceed our differences. And there is a place for difference that is to be respected. I love the fact that I'm different from all of my Israeli Jews, period. When I say our similarities by far exceed our differences, it's on almost every level. We are cousins, you know. We're both Abrahamic. Islam is, uh, is a version of Judaism. Even when you think about the theological aspect of these people, we are so, so similar. But we let the noise of politics and, uh, and demagogues dictate how we manage a conversation. It, you know, it boggles my mind that 2020, we concentrate more on military budget than education budget. You have ministries of defense, of ministries of war, but you don't have ministries of peace. That's so interesting. In the most conflicted area in the world. You know, this experience has told me and has taught me that it is really much more simple than we think. Get people together. Let them talk. Let them connect over a shared value, a shared interest, a common denominator of a sort. And so, you know, I've been having a lot of fun lately in, uh, you know, thinking about a business and bringing an Arab and a Jew, a Palestinian and an Israeli. Like, you know, in Zaytun Ventures, the hybrid uh, investment uh, slash startup factory, that's what I've been doing for the past five uh, something years. And the vision here is really, let's create a new Middle East. Let's create a new Middle East, a Middle East that is interconnected and interdependent and powered by entrepreneurs and innovation. How cool would it be to bring, again, be it uh, Israeli, agrotech, food tech, you know, health tech, uh, innovation to the Arab world? You know, these are areas that are very, very much needed here. And obviously vice versa. So that's really what we've been doing. Uh, we took uh, one of our best companies today is called Leap Learner. And Leap Learner is a company that is established by a Palestinian and an Israeli, a Chinese and a Lebanese, four founders. And what this company does is that it teaches kids self-learning through coding. So we teach a bunch of coding languages. And now we have offices in China, in the States. We've got a tiny presence here in uh, the United Arab Emirates, 
huge in India, Israel. And what do you hope this work that you do with Zaytun Ventures, what do you hope that its impact is on people and or companies? What exactly do you envision for the companies you've already invested in and really the future of the work that you do with Zaytun Ventures? So, you know, what really sparked the creation of Zaytun Ventures is the fact that I was looking at my own community, the Palestinians in general, but specifically the Palestinian Israeli citizens. You see, you call Israel a startup nation, while the Palestinians, who are 20% of Israel's population, that makes it 1,850,000 Arabs who live inside the state of Israel, who are Israeli citizens, and I'm not talking about the Palestinians outside in Palestine, West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza Strip. Who aren't considered citizens. Who are not considered citizens of Israel. They are citizens of Palestine when Palestine is an independent country. Those Palestinian Israeli citizens, yes, they are part of what you call the nation, the country, but we have nothing, almost nothing to do with the startup aspect of it. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are many, many reasons why, why that is, uh, but I wanted to challenge that narrative. I wanted to say, you know what? No. We're just as bright. We are just as capable. We study with our Jewish cousins in some of the best universities in Israel, yet we don't have opportunities. Partly, obviously, is the cultural aspect of not taking risks, right? But there are many risk takers who are Arab entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. But these guys are lacking funding. So one of the things I wanted to do is really, let's raise a few million dollars and inject some capital into Arab entrepreneurs inside Israel and encourage Arab-Jewish partnerships. That's what we started to do. Under this model, we invested in about 12 companies. Mm-hmm. Zaytun Ventures, myself, my co-founder, we started creating companies from scratch. Mm-hmm that have the Arab, Jewish, Israeli, Palestinian element and beyond the Mediterranean element. If you ask me, how would I measure my success? First of all, you know, while we do have obviously financial return on investment uh, as, as a metric, we also have a social return. The fact that through Zaytun Ventures, we appointed an Arab to become a chairman of a publicly traded company in the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. It never happened from 1948 until 2018. There was never a Palestinian, an Arab, who chaired a company on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. That's fascinating. Through Zaytun Ventures, that happened. But not only that, we also have our diversity metric, which said, hey, I'm going to come to Jewish-Israeli companies. I'm happy to invest in you, but you must commit to a level of diversity of 30% from you know, management, board, and staff. And diversity is not just bring Arabs, bring women into your companies, ultra-Orthodox Jews, Russians, Ethiopians, and obviously Arabs and Palestinians. I've always dreamt of you know, having one of our companies being on, if not New York Times, then at least Haaretz, okay? or a major a newspaper publication that basically talks about the challenge, here is a company that is inspiring hope that was created by a Jewish Israeli and an Arab somewhere. doesn't have to be a Palestinian, could be a Lebanese, a Syrian. A, and these guys are working to solve a real problem in this region. And they are putting their differences aside to connect not just to their common humanity, but what makes their world 
a better place. And it's completely changing the narrative of how they perceive themselves and how others perceive them as well. In the Absolutely. And they become maybe, and maybe, just maybe, Bakhtash, they become an example for other teams to follow. Yeah, yeah. And so what I'd like to do now as we wrap up this conversation is to ask in your own words, what would you say that your message for the world is? Challenge your own narrative. Look beyond, dig deeper, and show up. I've learned in my own life that half of success is simply showing up. Because when you show up, things happen. And that relates to my encouragement of young people especially. Challenge who you are. Challenge those preconceived notions that somehow, without you knowing, were built inside of you. You didn't even know about that. You were born to a reality that was dictated to you. Challenge that. Create your own reality. Create your own world on values that you perceive to be your core values. I think that's the message I would give to, to the world. That's great. Orsan Hussein, thank you for the work that you do and thank you for being the light in the darkness. Great pleasure to be with you, Bakhtash. Thank you so much for your time and for this opportunity. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi and theme music by Kais Esar. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.